0: .NET Rocks episode 878 with guest James Kovacs, recorded live Tuesday, May 28th, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. And by franklins.net makers of GesturePack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at GesturePak.com And by Diatom, developers
1: of the .NET Rocks mobile app. Available now for Windows phone, iPhone, and Android phones. And now, here are Carl and Richard.
2: Thank you very much, and welcome back to Dying Rocks. Carl and Richard here in Mississauga, near Toronto, in Ontario, at DevTeach. Indeed we are, and this is
1: the 10th anniversary of DevTeach. We've been doing this a long time. We met at this show. That's right, in Montreal, many years ago. Yeah, many, many, many years ago.
2: I overheard you talking about water-cooling your PC and the flying car guy, and I was like, i got to have you on my show. And I was on your show. That was show number 69. Oh, those, those were the days. Well, anyway, uh, we're here with James Kovacs, but before we introduce him, let's uh, get started with Better Know Framework.
1: Cool, buddy. What do you got?
2: Well, I found, uh, it's a couple years old, but I found a really good article on building a simple ASP.NET Echo server for WebSockets uh, with the WebSockets interface at tinyurl.com slash WebSockets sample. There's two S's in there. Be careful. And this is basically an ASHX handler that mm-hmm. uses the WebSockets api in asp net to uh, create a little echo handler so it's like a a, a, b- a baseline uh implementation of WebSockets on the server
1: nice and i noticed it's dot net four five so it's pretty current
2: yeah it's been updated for dot net four five in fact he talks about using the new get package to get microsoft WebSockets. nice yeah so there you go it's pretty cool it's a good little uh way to get started if you haven't gotten into WebSockets yet and uh no, learn it, love it. What
1: can I say? Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 859. That's the one we did with Amir Ranjan about OAK, if you recall, which was really an interesting synthesis of a bunch of different tools together to do ASP.NET development.
2: And we're going to be doing a DNR TV on
1: that. Yes, DNR TV is not dead. We are going to do an, uh, a couple on OAK. Awesome. I'm excited about that. That's really great. This comment comes from the user handle S graphics. So I don't actually know your name, but that's all right. And he says, thanks for the interesting show. Combining pieces, that's libraries, modules, and packages in an innovative polyglot manner is definitely the future. I think we can see that technologies with great package managers strive faster and gain more ground. This actually ties in with the whole one ASP.NET theme that Microsoft's mission is actually not only to create a well functioning universal ASP.NET project experience, but tie that in with the NuGet package manager in some crazy way so that the entire experience would help us be much more like a mere Ranjan. Microsoft has made it easier to mix and match layers in an extremely fluent way. I agree. I think, you know, I, I appreciate that Microsoft starting to embrace the reality that it's a heterogeneous world and that there's good things to learn from the Ruby guys and the uh, the Java guys, and we're starting to see more of this. get it comes from the Linux world. It's just they've done it really well, and package management is cool. So uh, thank you so much, S-Graphics. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you, as long as I can get your address. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, you can write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via the mobile app available for iOS, Android, and Windows Phone. And Windows 8. And Windows 8 now, too. Yeah, there's a Windows 8 app now for .NET Rocks, and you can write comments on there. It appears on all the other systems. Fantastic. And before we go any further, I need to tell
2: you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive training online for developers. They have hundreds of hardcore developer training courses offered by MVPs and industry experts. They release 12 to 15 new courses every month and offer a free 10-day trial. Pluralsight offers a wide range of developer training courses, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, and pretty much anything you can think of on the Microsoft stack, including some by our guest, James Kovacs. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, let me introduce to you again, James Kovacs. it been a few years, but uh, he is a technical evangelist for JetBrains. He's passionate in sharing his knowledge about object orientation, solid, TDD, BDD, testing, object relational mapping, dependency injection, refactoring, continuous integration, and related techniques, you know, modern software development. He blogs on CodeBetter.com as well as his own blog at JamesKovacs.com. He's a technical contributor for Pluralsight writes articles for MSTN Magazine and Code Magazine and is a frequent speaker at conferences and user groups. He's the creator of Psaki, a PowerShell based build automation tool intended to save developers from XML hell. James is the Ruby track chair for DevTeach one of Canada's largest independent developer conferences. He received his bachelor's degree from the University of Toronto and his master's from Harvard. Thank you, gentlemen. Glad to be back. Great to have you back, and great to be here in Canada again. So while your bio says the Ruby
0: track, you're actually running the JavaScript track? That's right. Uh, running a JavaScript track as well as a web track with Christopher. Nice. And going really well, actually. Yes, I've heard a lot of positive comments, a nice variety of talks in both tracks, and sort of get your feet wet in web development and understand the latest techniques. Are you getting into the functional side of JavaScript here at DevTeach? I just gave a talk earlier today on exactly that topic. And how was it received? It was received very well. A lot of interest in using functional techniques to tame JavaScript code.
2: Do you find that the people who are interested in this are functional already and then want to apply it to JavaScript, or... Are JavaScript programmers that
0: want to see what functional programming can do for them? Most of them are actually C-sharp or Java developers who dabble in JavaScript and want to apply functional techniques Hmm. to their JavaScript because they're realizing that it's turning into spaghetti and getting out of control. So this is just all about trying to manage JavaScript in a reasonable way? Very much so. There's JavaScript has a lot of different languages that it originated from, yeah. um, and so some of those were from an OO-type paradigm, mm-hmm. uh the prototype OO-type systems, but it also had its roots in functional languages. And so if you treat it more like a functional language, you can uh, achieve much more composable systems that are much more maintainable. Well, that I think you hit the nail on the head, maintainable and also resulting in
2: less code, which always means a faster... Uh, experience and a better experience.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, nothing's more maintainable than fewer lines of code. Yes, the easiest code to maintain is the code that you don't have to write. Nice. (laughs) I love it. So tell us about
2: uh, what we can expect when we look into functional programming in JavaScript.
0: Where does it start? Really, it's looking at JavaScript in a more declarative style and using... Treating functions as first-class objects within the language. A lot of people program JavaScript in a very procedural manner with for loops and if statements and the like, whereas in a much more functional manner, you declare functions to perform little actions, little composable pieces, and then you string them together in a pipeline. So you can do this yourself, but it's often easier to use a framework such as, or it's really more of a library, such as underscore JS, which was extracted from backbone JS. And there are other related libraries that do similar things like lazy.js. And
2: so the idea is you end up with a line like do this, do dot, do that, dot, if that, dot, do this, that kind of syntax
0: sort of chaining together functions. Right, you'd have often uh, in a functional paradigm, you've got, you're operating on a collection. So if you're doing jQuery, you can use in a functional style. So you say, get me all of the elements that have the class credit card number on them, and then apply this validation when you lose focus. And you can typically do that in one or two lines of code. Exactly, and just one or two lines of code rather than having line, many, many lines.
1: And lots of event handlers and just all of that kind of, that's where JavaScript gets really ugly, right? Is trying to manage that event bubbling behavior and, and trying to capture all the things at the same, at the right level. And you've, you eventually build this code that is so dependent on the structure of the page that the moment you change the page in any way, you're in hell. It's very painful. And
0: there's also a lot of complexity in terms of managing the state. A classic example is, Capturing the scroll event on a window. Mm-hmm. You are scrolling the window, that scroll event is firing hundreds, thousands of times a second. Sure. And if you're actually firing the event handler every single time, you can take the browser down with in certain browsers. So one of the things that you want to do is you want to only actually execute that event handler after the user stops scrolling or at most once per second. And so you've got Boolean flags, has this event already been Sounds called? Sounds like we need reactive in there. Reactive is can be used in a very functional way. Mm-hmm. I would consider it a, one of the functional libraries, which is its own piece, which we should talk about in a bit. But one of the things that underscore gives you to deal with this scrolling problem is the notion of throttling or debouncing. So you can create a callback handler that at most gets called once per second, or gets called once per second, but then won't get called again. Wow, that's great. So it's, it's a simple one line of code that changes your function, basically wraps all of that conditional logic and the set time it calls and everything else, and it's just like
1: underscore.debounce. And where do you set the rules for how often you want to fetch or respond to a particular uh, handler like that? Typically what you would do with underscore is you would declare the function
0: as you would normally, mm-hmm. the non debounced version. And then you would say underscore debounce function name, and then... The sort of criteria. the, the, the ti- what the the time I think time debounce looks like. The, well, the time period. Yeah. And it would return a new function that would perform
1: that behavior. Okay. Yeah, and I like that, because then it, it's, it depends on the function and its particular behavior, the ones you want to wrap up.
0: And then when you want to do more complex things, like when i'm scrolling and the user has depressed a button or i've got events coming in you you've got multiple event streams essentially right. that you want to compose together reactive extensions from microsoft is an excellent choice where you're really taking a series of events in time and treating it as a collection and using functional principles to iterate over events which is kind of a yeah, mind bending idea
2: it's mind bending but when you yeah. when you have lots and lots of events to consider it's It's amazing. So you say JavaScript comes from, you know, a functional background as well as the sort of object-oriented languages. But how can we be functional in JavaScript without using a library like underscore JS?
0: By actually using functions as first-class objects. So you can pass functions as parameters you can pass functions as parameters you can compose functions you can uh javascript has higher order functions that functions can take other functions without a a library or some help you end up writing a lot of code not typically a lot of code but there's a lot of boilerplate that you do have to write and you end up creating something like underscore (laughs) so don't do it use no, that and that's it where is under, free right and that's where underscore came from the creators of backbone realized that they had all of these utility functions sitting in the backbone source mm-hmm. and said other libraries can use this and that's why they extracted backbone out of it
2: so can you give us a just a uh, maybe a summary of some of the other things that are in underscore js that uh, that we can use
0: if you've ever used link and c sharp Many of those mm. operators are in underscore, so oh, you've got a, a map and a reduce, which are equivalent to wares and selects and things like that. You've got filter functions, you've got contains, you, contains less than, contains greater than unique all of that values, stuff. all those things that you would expect in Link. Uh, you've also got aggregation; mm-hmm. if you've got a Link aggregate function, that's the same as a reduce or reduce right from underscore. So a, a lot of these things can all be done right in underscore on the JavaScript client side. And I gotta
1: imagine when most people think of quote functional JavaScript, they think, ooh, I get link in JavaScript. And you just say this is what underscore helps us provide. Something link-ish. That's what
0: underscore gets helps you pro- gives you is essentially link in JavaScript mm-hmm. and a whole lot
2: more. Right. Right. In a in a base for you to create your own functional app. So when I think of when I think of applications that really shine with functional programming, I think of lots of data and when I think of something
0: running in the browser, I don't typically think of lots of data, but now we are getting that though with single page apps yeah apps the client side code is becoming much more complex. we need to compartmentalize it, split it up better. you can't just have all the JavaScript in one file and these functional techniques help tame that mm-hmm. logic. We do have a lot of data. We got uh I've had apps where you've got big sets of data coming down in JSON format and you need to troll through it and you'll have a collection updated and then it needs to update other widgets on the
1: page, tickers, graphs, right.
0: tables, things like that.
1: So yeah, you've got a bunch of data that needs to disperse to different elements on the page here's a way to write an expression that sort of captures all of that and then deals with them individually.
0: Yeah. And you're seeing browsers also have caching a lot of data mm-hmm. uh, in local storage and other places, and it'll pull it into memory. And then you'll have a, some sort of filtering criteria that will say, okay, only show me it's an address contacts type application. And it's like, only show me names starting with S because I've hit the S
1: tab. Right. And then all of a sudden, boom, You just filter it down. And you're not actually doing a JSON fetch at all. You're just sorting the data you've got stored locally. That's right.
0: And you might have some logic in there that says, oh, I haven't fetched the S's yet, so I'll fault it in. But then it it will store it locally for Mm -hmm. that faster performance. Nice.
1: Well, and I also appreciate the idea that when you get to really complex pages, you want to be able to have that same sort of search and extraction behavior for your elements. You know, just it's a, there's data that you've brought down, but it's also the structure of some of these pages now that you're dealing with. It's, it's complex to deal with all of that. Mm-hmm. So this is a better way to manage the event handlers within JavaScript itself.
0: Yes. It can also be used for managing uh, mm-hmm. the event handlers. Uh, a lot of, there's a lot of complexity in JavaScript event handlers mm-hmm. of how to unhook them properly from elements, especially if you've got dynamic creation and destruction right. of DOM elements. Because you have the single-page app and it's long-lived, these types of techniques are more important now because pages – we are not going page to page anymore. We're sitting on a page and therefore any cruft that we're building up in uh, the JavaScript, in uh, the runtime,
1: in -hmm. the JavaScript runtime – it's going to sit there. Yes. This is right, something yeah. we talked to, um, to John Papa about when we're talking about single page applications. Just this, you know, browsers were built to flush that page and load it again. And, and they're kind of sloppy with memory. They, you, you see a long running browser instance in task manager and it's consuming more and more and more memory. Like it's, it's not a trivial thing. I got to. I don't know how long we could sustain that like it, it how well uh, spas are going to work long term but I appreciate you know you're saying let's not keep reloading stuff let's really manipulate the data set we've got
0: but you ha- do have to be careful with manipulating that data set because you can and in- run into memory problems especially, especially if you're creating elements on the fly mm-hmm. Uh, You have to be careful of your memory usage that you're not, that you are releasing them properly, that the event handlers are getting released properly. And that's actually another portion of, uh, of underscore, which is, is useful is uh, function management. Mm-hmm. So part of dealing with event handlers is JavaScript has this really weird notion of what the this pointer it actually is. Right. And what it is is dependent on how a function is
2: being called. Yeah. I see that you can bind uh, an object to a function so that this becomes that object every time that function is called.
0: Exactly. So there's the, the underscore dot bind method that Deals with setting the this pointer to something sensible mm-hmm. so you don't
1: have to worry about it. That's awesome, actually. Like just talk, think about how much fancy dancing we've done inside of JavaScript to deal with that particular issue. Yes. Yeah. And
2: scoping and all of that crazy stuff. And talk about some of the other functional stuff like debounce
0: you mentioned. What exactly does that do? What Debalance does is it ensures that a function is only called after there's a certain quiescent period. So there have, that function hasn't been called in the last two seconds or one second, however long you set. So that was the thing that you used to, uh, prevent event handlers from being fired too rapidly. That's right. And then you can also, the related one is throttle, which says call, still call it, but only call it at most once per second.
1: Right. So even though I mean, and you see this effect, like drag your mouse pointer across a div, and you know thousands of event fires could happen. I think your example was with the scroll bar. Thousands of events can fire that are all more or less same event, slight variations, and you want to just absorb a bunch of those so that you don't have your handlers running more often than they need to. Exactly. So what's memoize? Memoization is a functional technique which is a
0: classic. Space-time trade-off. So if you're doing, I knew we were going to get to Star Trek sooner or later. (laughs) (laughs) So what it does is memoization of a function. It remembers the result of a calculation. So Mm. the classic example is the Fibonacci sequence. So I I was demonstrating earlier that on my laptop, if you do a memo, sorry, if you do a ask for the Fibonacci numbers from 1 through 50, it'll take about 30 seconds to calculate because when it gets to number 50, it's calculating the values of 49 and 48 and 47 mm. all the way down. But it already did that for the Fibonacci of 49 right? and for 48 and all the way down. So, what memoization does is it remembers the value of those calls. So, it's sort of like a cache. It's a cache. Yeah. But the nice thing about it is you call underscore.memoize on the normal function and it handles all the caching for you Hmm. wow it doesn't you so all of a sudden on the example that i gave where it took 30 seconds to calculate fibonacci of 50 with uh as soon as you meme wise it it takes under a
1: second wow so it's just utilizing resource more intelligently
0: yes and you just have to make the decision is the space are you going to be calling this function enough Mm -hmm. to remember make it worthwhile remembering the results or not is it worth taking up that memory space Absolutely. Very neat. Uh, Can you talk to us about defer? Deferring. So a defer is a simple, I don't want to call this right now. Okay. Call it later. It's the (laughs) equivalent of set timeout. So often what uh, underscore is doing is it's just delaying or it's uh, utilizing either browser functions or uh, JavaScript runtime functions Mm -hmm. to form these actions. So uh, a lot of these things like Defer and debalance and throttle are just calling set
1: timeouts and related timer functions underneath the covers for you. So you you've hit a basic a, a point where you've got to run a, a chunk of code, run the particular function. Maybe it's going to do a callback, or uh, uh, now I'm thinking like web timing. As a guy who lives used to live a lot of times in mm-hmm. web timing, like you do need to get the web timings up there eventually. So the idea that at a logical point I could just say, hey, go fire the web timings up, but defer it. Do you just set it for a certain amount of time, like thirty seconds? Yes, exactly.
2: Is, can you wait until you know the stuff has calmed down, or in more of a little idle state? I don't know how to say it. Like,
0: yes, there's actually another function in there. I'm trying to remember what it's called, uh, but it it does exactly that. It just waits. It's the equivalent of calling set time out of zero, which basically waits for the JavaScript function queue to empty until it's called. Is that the difference between delay and defer? Uh, Actually, I think I just got them, those mixed up. There you go. So, okay. So delay <laughs> so is, like delay time is wait and then
1: defer is wait until the stack's empty. The stack's empty yeah. and the JavaScript runtime I'm sorry, is sorry, That's idle. pure awesome. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. yeah. I needed this three years ago. Like that's exactly my problem. I have a half a dozen things that need to happen sometime during the lifetime of this mm-hmm. page. I don't give a crap when it happens. Do it when nobody cares. Exactly. Do not impact my performance. I need defer. And you notice that none of, nobody has said the word
2: asynchronous yet. And yet this is all asynchronous. Yes.
1: Yeah, I guess it, it is. Just is. Yeah. It's just the, we. it's such a weird way to think about JavaScript. Like this yes. is, no, this ain't your daddy's browser. What's going on? <laughs>
0: well, that's the interesting thing is if you look at how the, how this, these pieces are implemented under the covers, they're very, Un- understandable they're mm-hmm. comprehensible but having these abstractions at your fingertips allows you to write better javascript you want to write a throttling call sure you can see if things is see what the timer state is right now do a new date and see if it's so much past the time when the last was called you sure. can do all that yourself but the ability to just say
1: underscore dot throttle yeah in one line and then you're done and you don't have to think about well, it. well and it's clear Right you nobody's know, looking at oh, he grabbed date. Why does he care about date here? not realizing it's a timing function. It's just throttleless. I know what that means.
2: so where does where do objects fit in the functional JavaScript world if at all? Are you creating objects? Do you find yourself merging your knowledge of IOC containers and all of that classic stuff in JavaScript
0: at all? or you tend to use more object literals? And underscore has good support for object literals. You can query them and pick pieces out of them. You can deal with arrays of object literals. And we better clarify. I mean, what do you mean when you say object literal? An object literal is essentially a hash table. Right. It's, it's a
1: key value pair bag. Mm-hmm. So it's it's just, this is the thing you would do to compose an object. You know, all, of, all of the stuff that matters in it rather than the, you know, area. It's really a C sharp struct. Right. Just properties, no methods. Right. Okay. And you can write
0: more complex objects that do have properties on them, but if you're using a more functional style, just as if you were programming in F-sharp, you are typically writing functions as your first-class pieces of decomposition and then handing in grab bags of data that are that and worked upon by these functions. All right. So, it is a different style to be thinking about
1: things. Yeah, absolutely. And I it, think it's part of the challenge of working in JavaScript. There's a lot of ways to write code here. And this is a somewhat abstract way, but… It's certainly got strength to it.
0: For certain classes of problems, it's incredibly useful. Uh, and that's one of the things I do like about learning a number of different languages and a number of different styles is the best way to solve a problem isn't necessarily the one you already know. Right.
1: And I, I, I got to imagine you appreciated the comment uh, we read in the show as well. I, I picked it for you, James, to be <laughs> honest. It's, here is a great, a great discussion we had about that. The, JavaScript and web development now is polyglot. There's a lot of languages involved and a lot of technique involved. There's more than one way to, to solve that particular thing. Absolutely. And you're you're absolutely a candidate of that, too. I mean, you're working in JavaScript instead of Ruby. What's happened to you?
0: Ruby, C sharp, <laughs> uh, <laughs> dabbling in Objective C now. Oh it's my
1: yeah, all over the board. So
2: let's talk about a couple more of these methods here. Uh, wrap, wraps the first function inside of the wrapper function. Passing it as the first argument.
0: What's that all about? It allows you to do uh, simple aspect-oriented programming. So you can call something before and after, b-
1: before actually calling the function. Wow. So we come in here don't wanting to modify an existing JavaScript function. We just want to be able to do an invocation ahead of it. And then… Pre and post invocations. Pre and post invocations. Just call up the wrap and say, here's what I want you to do before. Here's what I want you to do after.
0: Very cool. And what about Compose? Compose uh, allows you to chain together functions. So if you hand in a list of functions, and it will basically take the result of the rightmost function call and feed it into the next one to the left, and then left, left all the way out. Got one. it. So that's how you can chain, daisy chain functions It's one together. of the ways that you yeah. can create a new method so that's one way that javascript is a functional language and supports higher order functions is that compose will actually return you a new function that composes together and chains
1: together all those calls for you wow it's interesting it's just an interesting way to think because there are other ways we could deal with this it's not that hard to carry state from one function to another just call them in turn
0: no it isn't but it's just a Yet another way to, it is a functional concept that they've introduced into JavaScript uh, using built-in JavaScript mm-hmm. syntax, uh, but just makes it easier, if you're familiar with F-sharp or Haskell or another right. functional language, to use those same techniques that you've learned.
1: Well, and it's fewer lines of code again, right? It's a very clear way to say, here is the composition of this chain of functions, just go do it. And, uh, and you're, there's no question again about what's going on in the code.
2: Hey, Richard, you know what time it is?
1: Ah, that must be that happy time
2: again. That's right. It's time to debounce my steak bag. (laughs) You wouldn't want to call it too many times. (laughs) I live for these jokes. No, no. It's time to announce the winner of a DevCraft Complete Collection from Telerik. And uh, a lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club is going to win one today. But before we give up the name, I want to tell you that Telerik has controls for Windows 8. Amazing controls. They offer the same intuitive UI and UX, no matter if you're developing in XAML or HTML. You can get the number one native tool set for building Windows 8 apps at Telerik.com slash Windows 8. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rock. So, buddy, who won today? Our winner today is Dennis Costello. Uh, and I don't have my Dennis.
1: clappers. So we actually have to golf clap? We have to golf clap. Okay, little golf clapping.
2: I got to hold the microphone so I'm actually slapping my face. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and uh it, Dennis Wins a, a Telerik Devcraft Complete Collection. That's everything Telerik does In one box. And if you don't know what we're Talking about, go to dot com. Click on the big get free stuff Graphic in the upper right hand corner And uh answer a few questions And you could be a winner too Uh Be a member of the fan club. We have thousands Of members. Every show we give away A Telerik Devcraft Complete Collection And every December we give away $5,000 worth of High-tech
1: stuff. Indeed, we do. And last December, Rob Corbett from Ottawa, which is not far from where we are right now, won himself a Kinect and Windows 8 Touch development system. Uh, Exactly what he needed, and I'm sure he's enjoying it. I'm still waiting for those photos, Rob. Send them over.
2: (laughs) And we'd like to ask our guests, if you had five grand to spend on technology, James, what would you buy?
1: Ooh, that's a tough one. It's an interesting sum of money.
2: Now you could. Many people say they want a 3D printer, or you know, 3D printer would be a lot of fun,
1: especially nowadays. Mm, I just saw a new one. We're probably gonna have to do a show on. It's about thirty-five hundred dollars and does full multicolor RGB printing in plastic.
2: Oh, man, that's
1: crazy. And it's, you know, the 3D printers are at this place now where they're stopping being a hobbyist device that you have to sort of tinker with and it's starting to be just a reliable, you know, like a laser printer. Yeah, consumer device. But I would say even that machine is only three grand. So you'd still have some money left over. Well, you'd have to buy two grand worth of, uh, you know, drawing of consumables. <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah
2: or, or, or the plastic to put in the thing.
1: Yeah. Spools of plastic. I also think a, a good Wacom drawing tablet, because it's really the skill set, is the 3D drawing. That's why I keep saying if I finally get a 3D printer in my house, I will use it the least. My Both my daughters and my wife trained in CAD. So, I'm the only one who's not actually trained in CAD. you ever worked at, done 3D drawings? Anything like no,
0: I've I, I dabbled
1: in it, but... Yeah never done anything serious what do you think you'd make with a 3d printer like what's the first thing you're going to make yoda's head <laughs> i don't know that keeps a happening. new clarinet how <laughs> yeah, <a> saxophone yeah. <laughs> nice i would take that would take a while to render a saxophone all right should we jump back in cuz i actually want to change gears a little bit here so far i feel like we've just talked about underscore js is there more to functional programming in javascript than than underscore there are other libraries.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Underscore is the one I'm most familiar with. right? Uh, but there are other functional concepts that Underscore doesn't provide. One of them, when you're dealing with a lot of functional uh, – when you're doing a lot of functional research, is you want to be sorting through collections. A lot of it comes from the mathematics realm. Right. And you're dealing with infinite series. hmm So, uh, Underscore can't
1: handle that. But there's a
0: lazy.js, which
1: can. Okay. So, sort of a specialty in the functional space if you're going to deal with infinite series that go to lazy.
0: Yeah. So, if you want to check out uh, Project Euler, E U L E R. Yeah. We we project mispronounced Euler. it the first time we heard it. Euler. You yeah. Know, every, Euler. I, I've done that too. Yep. Yeah. Project Euler. No, it's Project Euler and it's got a whole series of mathematical problems. So, find the sum of all primes under a thousand. Wow. And, uh, so it's very mathematical. So you need these sort of infinite series to. Right start your problem off at and it's like okay well give me the all whole numbers that are primes that are so you're basically taking a Infinite set, and you're gradually filtering it down. It's like, right. okay, give me all the primes that are now less than a thousand. Da da da. And lazy JS actually gives you that notion of lazy collections, lazy evaluation in mm. JavaScript. So that's a really interesting one. Is Microsoft working on any JavaScript libraries that
2: uh, that they're sharing with the with the public? Maybe not just in the uh, functional world,
0: but uh, the one I'm most familiar with is Reactive Extensions for JavaScript, yeah. uh, which just have, has a ton of great functionality uh, and does. A lot of very interesting things.
2: Yeah. And so, it solves a lot of the same problems, doesn't it? That, uh, that you can solve with, uh,
0: underscore JS. Yes, it can. Uh, underscore, that. it tends to be a lot more lightweight. Mm-hmm. So if you're working with, uh, collections and need to be sorting through them, it's a quick and easy add. Uh, reactive takes a bit more work to get into. And what about mobile devices? Does underscore JS and, and reactive for that matter work well in mobile devices? Uh, underscore will work on mobile. I haven't, I don't know if, Mobile devices are in the test matrix for reactive, but it mm. wouldn't surprise me if they are because it's mobiles become so important. Well, the, but uh, but uh, Microsoft Research developed both reactive extensions for C sharp, but there is also a reactive extensions for, for JavaScript, JavaScript, yeah, which is a separate library. Yeah, it has the same concepts, it's a different syntax, and is built in JavaScript.
2: Yeah, I, I imagine that the result as i said at the top of the show the resulting javascript when you're using something like underscore you're going to generate a lot less code just by the nature of it so it might be an ideal platform for
0: mobile devices as long as the library itself isn't so big yeah the mo- the underscore js library is very small it's easily 4K minified minified yeah, yeah it's tiny tiny
1: tiny yes yeah, very small but i just wonder if if the workloads that it's good for make sense in a mobile device because I'm trying to keep my page pretty simple. And I'm trying to be careful with memory as well. Like the two things that sort of popped out to me uh, uh, at the strength of, of underscore, those are things I probably wouldn't want to do on a mobile device. Defer, absolutely. I need to defer all the time, everywhere, no matter what. I need it in my washing machine. Like all defer is good. But. Well, I can see
2: on a tablet, but maybe not a phone. But, you know, th- it just depends. I Phones are being pretty capable
0: you, now. You're right. Like, what you you know, you're
2: carrying around in your pocket. Actually, you know, I think of the spa that I used at DNS Simple, in the security line at an airport to add uh, MX records to my domain, cutting, uh, copying from Google's page and pasting into, you know, the DNS records from a spa on my phone. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And right. When you, I I really buy into this. I don't know if you do as well, James. One web page, right? Like, don't make a, an m dot. Just one web page, yes. responsive. And
2: difference. .netrocks.com dot is not an example of that web page. Yes, we know <laughs> we're working on.
1: Yeah, that. the you know, the cobblest children has no shoes. Like, we are clearly guilty of that. But it's on our list that we're going to solve this problem. But so I guess you'd have you'd want to be using underscore throughout uh, in all the mobile environment as well, just to keep it under control. The one thing you have to be careful with uh the sort of the.
0: Responsive design is if you have an incredibly rich desktop experience mm-hmm. with a lot of image-heavy content and a lot of data coming down, r- with the uh, responsive design, often it's done through CSS tricks and yeah. hiding things and rearranging page elements.
1: You're loading a lot of stuff you're, you're lo- not using. Exactly. Yeah. and, that, and that's So
0: sometimes it can work really well, mm-hmm. but other times you want to be careful. And, and that's not a dedicated critique
1: on functional programming or anything like that. That's just good responsive web design. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting problem in that respect. What about doing these functional designs outside of the browser? Do you play with Node.js at all? Like, is it something you'd look at for this?
0: I have played a a bit with Node.js. I don't claim to be an expert, Mm -hmm. but Underscore does work there as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are other – there's the Node-lazy library, which is similar to Mm lazy.js, which, once again, does similar things. allows you to create these infinite lazy collections and perform these evaluations. I got to imagine that Node is a great
2: environment for Underscore. I mean, because, you know, you can deal with a lot more data on the server. You're usually dealing with a lot more data on the server than you are on the client. And, you know, like I said before, when, when I say a lot of data in the functional world, I mean a lot of freaking
0: data, yes. not just what you can keep in memory on your browser. Yes. There's, that's one thing that uh, functional programming excels at is large, large data sets. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amanda Locker did a talk at DevTeach here a number of years ago where she was comparing F sharp versus C sharp solving the same problem. Right. And she put all of the code for a particular, uh, Insurance calculation on one slide in F Sharp, and it was small code, but it was legible code right. in F Sharp. And then in C Sharp, the code was literally a pixel high
1: <laughs> <laughs> to get it wow. on one page. Get it on one page. <laughs> That's hilarious. You know, and I'm, I'm a really appreciate you bring up F Sharp as well because F Sharp to me seems like a, a statically typed functional approach to programming, and Java is so dynamic. I don't know if I'm just not getting my head around it fully. Like, is that a strength or a weakness? It's a difference. Okay.
0: Uh, it's a difference. Mm-hmm. So you have to – uh there are advantages to dynamic typing and there are advantages to static typing. Mm-hmm. Uh The one thing I do really like uh, about F-sharp is it has a very strong type inferencing engine. Right. Uh Much, much stronger than C-sharp. Until you've played with F-sharp, you really don't know – understand how much – hair you don't have to pull out when you're just (laughs) declaring expressions of funks of ints of all the way down these very deeply nested generic types of generic uh, pieces that you don't want to have to worry about and uh, the f-sharp compiler just
1: figures it out you just declare it as a vowel and off you go right well you, you know you bring up an interesting point too which is that in some ways strong typing just isn't the same thing in a functional world you're always passing these complex structs dynamically between functions. Well, it is still strongly typed,
0: though, but in mm-hmm. a different sense. Uh, there's a lot more implicit use of generic types, right, in
1: a dyna- in a functional language. So it's it's strongly generic. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> But the other element that I, I think is a big deal around stuff like, like JavaScript that isn't evil, you know, we talk about, we had Doug Crockford on all those times, e- ages ago, g- JavaScript, the good parts. And one of the things was you needed these testing frameworks around managing dynamic behavior so it didn't bite you in the end. You wanted maintainable code. As, and again, it's like, how much more work is that compared to let's go live in a strongly typed functional world?
0: The part of the challenge that I see is people fall back on static typing as a crutch for not right. testing. Mm-hmm. And what the compiler can tell you is does it obey the lexical rules of the language? Right.
1: That's all it can tell you. It can't tell you if you flipped a Boolean the wrong way. Right. And so you're not going to allow us to say, hey, you know, strong typing is a kind of testing. Is it really not? Strong strong typing is a type of testing. Okay. Am I getting
0: out the type of object that i expect mm-hmm. that's all the compiler is telling you. right is it returning something that has the form and structure that i'm expecting you can do that in a dynamic language too and yeah. good dynamic but language you, programmers do that yeah. but they test
1: so much more well i think one of the parts of this is because you're going to build tests just to deal with the type issues you probably build all the other tests you need too exactly where we can sort of hold back on that longer in the strongly typed world Much to the detriment. You you kind of dig yourself a bigger hole before you realize I'm not saying it's a good thing. It's just, you know, it's clearly a bad thing and you want to write the test. The fact that JavaScript's going to kill you so much sooner if you don't get the tests around it. So you get, you go down the right path.
2: What is the underscore
0: object itself in underscore JS? It is actually a function, just like all objects (laughs) inside of, uh, inside of JavaScript are functions. And functions themselves are a type of object. So a yeah. bit of weirdness there, but it, it, it is, it's just like the dollars object in jQuery. Okay. Uh, it is the essentially the namespace or class that you get access to all of the functions. It actually overloads itself. So you can do a call on the underscore function and start chaining off of it. Okay. So there's actually two syntaxes in underscore. There's the more functional syntax where you say underscore dot map, and the first thing you hand in is the collection, mm-hmm. and then whatever you want to do to it. The other version is underscore paren collection name, and then you can do dot map. Okay. And then you pass in the function. So it's just a – rather than – Yeah, I don't think in, I like that as much. It, I, I, it's less of a – it's more of an object style than right. a functional style. okay. So it's just how you want to read your so own So how code. you want to play around with. And
2: you said compose was one way to do chaining, but there's another way? Yes, you can also use the chain
0: method. Okay, and is that a underscore dot chain kind of thing? Underscore dot chain, that's yeah. right. So the difference there is the chain uh, method will return essentially a chaining object that you can just do a map and then a filter and then a reduce and then a da, 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 all the way down. Whereas what compose will do is it will take all those functions and return a new function that does the same thing for oh. you. So it's depending on whether you're trying to construct a method chain uh, and feed data through it, mm-hmm. or if you're trying to construct a new function that can perform actions on data. Okay, so it's kind of two sides of the same coin.
1: Yeah, and and again, I think it's really about a lot of readability too. It's, just, it's an easy way to say this sort of composition of a set of steps. Yes. So, what shouldn't we be doing in functional JavaScript? What doesn't
0: make sense? What doesn't make sense? You still need to have objects mm-hmm. uh, for like, if you're dealing with state. Uh, you have to deal with the DOM. Yep. Um, typically, you don't want to use simple arrays of data. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to want to use more complex data types. So that's a good place. You can still use underscore in concert with it and functional techniques in concert with Mm -hmm. it, but you're going to want to have something that looks like a customer that has a name field and all of the other pieces to it. Uh, Often when you're using other frameworks, if you're using jQuery, like jQuery UI, you're displaying a dialogue and the dialogue is going to take an object literal that specifies what to do. Right. So you still need to use objects here and there, but where you're dealing with large collections or any collection of data, functional techniques are often easier to keep your code sane in as JavaScript. As long as
1: we don't have to get into building a whole object functional mapping layer. Oh, please now, not
2: Yeah. The thought did occur to me, especially if you're using all these other things like, you know, Backbone and you, you've got a lot of libraries working together. Are, are you having to map between those things?
0: What you'll often do is your main source of truth will be in some sort of JSON formatted data. Right. And you'll be using underscore to extract it. What I've done is uh, the data is rendered uh, against DOM objects using JSON and a, a templating library. And then you will do your statistics. So... What is the total number of customers? What is the total sales? And you will do that summation, that aggregation type of functionality using underscore, using the extraction and aggregation functionality against those collections. All right.
2: So you're still using the same objects. There's no, there's no need to uh, special handle anything for underscore. No, there's not. Okay. No conversion or it's
1: really a utility belt Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you said it came from backbone, so i gotta imagine it works pretty well with backbone exactly yeah so why don't we talk a little bit about backbone in that context is this is where this thing came from like what's the separation there what's the real relationship i because i don't think a backbone is particularly functional
0: no No backbone is really an MVC style framework for client side JavaScript. Mm -hmm. It's a framework first and foremost, it provides a structure. It, as long as you follow backbones rules, you can spin up a single page app very quickly and connect all of the various pieces together. Underscore is a lot of the times used as the glue. So you often have various backbone views all working against the same model. And some of those might be, uh, Average sales for the month. So rather than going back to the server, you've got all the sales sitting in an orders collection, do the summation, the averaging, all of that using underscore. Right. So that's where it really works well together.
1: You've solved our smart grid problem. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> not that we really should, you know, not the smart grips are always a good idea either, but it is a way to manipulate as much like a data table, you know, much more common ma- manipulation and then doing different rendering on it. And do you tend to use Knockout alongside Backbone to actually do the, uh, the data binding part of this? Uh, the data binding, there is actually a, I think it's Backbone.Marionette.
0: Oh, okay. Is a Knockout-like uh, data binding framework uh, written by Derek Bailey who's oh. done a lot of backbone work. Yeah, and that's it, right. Um, yeah, I'd heard that. Uh, I just couldn't remember the name, Marionette. So it does the same thing. Uh, I've never tried to integrate Knockout and Backbone at the same time because they have a very different view of what a model right. should be. So that, all of a sudden, you're going to have data synchronization issues because you probably have to have two models. Yeah. Uh, whereas Marionette does that data binding that for you. It occurs to me when I said Backbone before, I was thinking of Knockout.
2: Um, because of the, of the differences in the data. Yeah, that can get
1: hairy. Well, we get back to this problem. I mean, we've done a bunch of shows now around various libraries available for JavaScript and actually understanding which ones go together. I think is a pretty big deal, you know, and, and that's, you I know, mean, we were sort of pressing against Doc out there and thinking, because that's a different way of binding data. And it's a good one, mm-hmm. but you get this overlying metaphor you're getting from Backbone. You got to stale on those lines. So, okay, Backbone Marionette's a better way to, to combine yes. data. I just don't feel like we've got great documentation saying, here are various architectural patterns working with JavaScript and the tool sets that support them. Uh, Ask John Papa. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Just tweet tweet him. I, I don't think there's a lot of it is tribal knowledge. Yeah. Well, and that's the whole thing is then you have to figure out what tribe you want to be in. right? What is the one right way for you?
2: That's why they listen to this show.
1: Nice. I just had to say that. Of course, <laughs> wouldn't want to put you guys out of a job. No, no, no. Well, there's always more to talk about. So, uh, any other pieces we need to know about functional JavaScript? What have we left out so far? I think we've pretty much covered things. Got it nailed. So get happy with underscore JS. Good things will happen to you. And it doesn't. It you don't have to program functionally with underscore JS, right? I mean, it, it just that's the natural tendency. It's the way it's going to work. Yes. And you're going to find things are much easier
2: once
0: you embrace it. Once you embrace it, and it will get you started so that you can start branching off and looking at other pieces like lazy.js and other functional techniques, just other ways of making your JavaScript code more palatable, easier to work with. James, tell us what you've done in Pluralsight. Pluralsight. I've recently, I uh, released a Git course. Actually, it wasn't that recently, but that was that one's been popular, and I've done an, an Hibernate course, uh, continuous integration. So I've done a variety of things with Pluralsight so far. Awesome. And it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, it's great stuff, and we love them. Well,
2: uh, what's next for you? Where are you off to after DevTeach? I'm heading back to Calgary,
0: and I'm going to be spending some time with RubyMotion. RubyMotion. What's a RubyMotion? RubyMotion allows you to program iPhone apps and iPad apps anything on the iOS platform using Ruby rather than Objective-C and that's good
1: that's really interesting I think that's a tablet show that's
0: definitely a tablet yeah. show I have been trying to wrap my head around Objective-C and it is one weird ass language <laughs> <laughs> Can you say
1: that on .NET Rocks? <laughs> oh, I've heard people say way worse than that. Well, look, when you're comfortable in Ruby Motion, it's all fresh in your head, come back and talk to us. We'd love to do a tablet show on it. that other way to tackle the iOS uh, Android development problem is always interesting.
0: Be yeah, happy to do so. James, thank you very much. A pleasure as always.
2: And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember, PluralSight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online, Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website, at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got
0: transmitted bands by the FCC in summer. Time for it. Life
2: is hard.